Psalm 132, the Psalm of Ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you in the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him... His crown will shine. This is the reading of the Word of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, O God, we have come here this morning to worship the King. Our King, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we hear the preached Word this morning, Lord, even just in reading the text, we see everywhere images and pictures and References to Christ our King. Lord, use our time in your word this morning to give us a clear sight of the glory, the beauty, the power, the might, and the grace and love of our King, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Can we trust the promises of God? Can we as Christians trust that God truly loves us? What leads us to trust God? Is it the law, right? Is it our obedience or is it Christ? Is it the gospel? This seems like an easy uh, question to answer in our head, right? But not so easy to know in our heart, is it? Well, the right understanding of the covenant that God made with David is essential to answering this question, both theologically and in our hearts as well. How we read this psalm, how we understand the covenant with David is essential to the Christian's assurance. The psalm is a reflection on the covenant God made with David, the covenant that we saw in our law passage this morning where uh, God promised that David's sons would sit on the throne forever. Can the people trust this promise of God? Here's our question, right? The question that finds little room in our heart. 
As we saw in our law passage, this covenant is a covenant of works. All the promises in 2 Samuel 7 hang on a condition of perfect obedience. David's sons must obey if the promise of God is to be upheld. And this task of perfect obedience comes to each of David's sons. And as we know, the history of Israel is one son of David failing after another. So this psalm and the Davidic covenant look forward to the king to come, as we saw again in our gospel passage this morning. This is a shadow that hangs over That covenant, the requirement of perfect obedience, the law of God, and the people's failure. Do you feel that shadow hanging over you today? Can we trust God? Even though we give the Lord ample reason to reject us, ample reason in our sin to turn His face away and reject us, can we trust Him to love us still? This psalm reminds us that yes, we can. Because behind, of all, behind all of God's covenants, all of His covenant promises, including both those to David and those to us, behind the gospel itself is the covenant the Son made with the Father. To be sent, right? To be sent as the greater David, the true David, to take up the mantle of the king, to obey perfectly as the true son of David. That is what this psalm shows us. That's how the Davidic covenant helps us to answer. Can we trust God? Because this psalm and the covenant of David, they they point forward, right, to the king to come, but they also point back to the covenant made between the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Because Christ is the greater David, God's promises to his people are sure. And so our trust in him is certain. We're going to see this in three ways this morning. Uh, First, the oath of the king, then the work of the king, and then finally, the glory of the king. All to see more clearly Christ the king. The New Testament is explicit that David is fulfilled in the second David, the greater David who is Christ. So each of our points, we're going to kind of see how this covenant of of works with David um, is seen and then how it is fulfilled in Christ. Okay? So, look with me at verses uh, 1 through 5. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or go into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So this psalm begins with the people calling God to remember for David's sake, the hardships he endured, and the oath that he swore. Scholars believe that this psalm was written around uh, the temple ceremonies. In fact, Solomon himself quotes this psalm at the dedication of the temple. I agree with those scholars that most likely Solomon wrote this psalm uh, for that purpose, right? For the dedication of the temple. And so the people, they're, they're, they're looking at the temple. They're looking at the presence of God there. And they say to God, remember David. Remember your covenant with David. And we see this language all throughout the Old Testament, right? Especially from God's perspective. He says to Israel uh, constantly, um, especially Judah, right? That that, uh, you deserve to be destroyed, but for my servant David, right? For the sake of David, I will relent. For, For David's sake, I will 
preserve you. But notice the people don't call on God to remember his promises, God's promises of that covenant. They call on God to remember David's hardship and oath. They know that for the Lord to answer the petitions that we will see in verses 6 through 10, it must be earned. Remember all the hardships David endured. Now, the word for hardship here is most often applied to David uh, regarding the afflictions of war. So it's his, his hardship in his devotion to God, right? To conquer the land, ultimately to find a resting place for God. This is how David sought to find a resting place for God. He's conquering land. He's bringing people under the subjugation of Israel. He's uh, gathering up resources, money, these kind of things that will eventually be used in the building of the temple. And this is the oath, right, that he makes in verses 3 to 5. That he will find a place for God's resting. But note here in verses 3 and 5 that the focus is not what David promised to, to build a house. Right? The focus of these verses is his determination, his devotion to do so. Right? I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not sleep until I find a place for the Lord. Again, the covenant that Israel is under is a covenant of works. It is not of grace. And so this psalm begins by asking the Lord, go to your resting place. It will get there, but it begins not with grace, but with works. With David's devotion and determination to build a house. This is the oath of the king. And the people call upon the Lord to remember that oath and that devotion. Because that is their hope, right? It's their only hope, is the oath and devotion of another. And brothers and sisters, the hope of the Christian is the exact same. There is another who made an oath. Another who faced hardships because of that oath. Another who did and is building the house of the Lord. The Son of God made a covenant with the Father. He made an oath, a promise, just like David did. And the hope of the Christian is not your promises to do better. It is not the law, but it is Christ's oath. It is the Son's oath to the Father to save the elect. To build the church. To build a resting place for God. This is what theologians uh, call the pactum salutis, or the covenant of redemption. Christ is the Lamb slain before the foundations of the world because He made an oath. He made a promise to the Father to be slain on behalf of Christians. What does it mean that, uh, you know, that God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world, as Paul says in uh, Ephesians 1.4? It means that the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit made a covenant before time began, an oath to save, an oath to save the church. So David doesn't just point forward to Christ's work, which we'll see in a moment, but his oath to God points back to Christ's oath to the Father in the covenant of redemption. Think about the words of this psalm. Right? I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord. You know, in history, we actually see Christ uphold this oath in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does he say there? Not my will, but yours, O God. 
So Christ in his humanity asked the Father to let this cup pass from him, but he ultimately appeals to the covenant of redemption between them and says, not my will, but God's. Right? That is the one will of the Father and the Son and the Spirit to redeem sinners. What's going on in the garden while he's praying this? The disciples are sleeping. Right? He has to keep going back to them and waking them up. But Christ is not. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord. It is Christ who says these words to the Father before time began. And it is that eternal divine oath that leads Christ to say in the garden, not my will, but yours. And brothers and sisters, this oath is our hope. The oath of Christ to the Father to save you. This means that if you're a Christian here this morning, you're a Christian because Christ promised the Father that He would save. This psalm begins with a call for God to remember the oath of David, the devotion and hardships that David faced in light of that oath. Because the people knew that the only way that God would be with them in the temple was was on the obedience and devotion of their king. This is the difference between the covenant of works in Israel and the covenant of grace today. If you have faith in Christ, you can trust God's promises to love you, no matter the hardships we face, no matter our lack of devotion, because God's promises began when the Son and the Father and the Spirit made an oath. And we, like this psalm, call God to remember the oath of the greater David. If you are in Christ this morning, God's love for you does not depend on you or your obedience or your promises to be better, but upon the oath of your king. Before existence, before creation, before you even existed. Because Christ is the greater David, God's promises to his people are sure. And so our hope in him is certain. We can trust Him. So trust Him. Look to Him alone. To Christ alone. Rest assured, what Christ promised to the Father was the work to redeem you. And this oath, Christ accomplished. This psalm begins with the oath of the King and reminds us that our King, the true Son of David, made a better oath and then came to fulfill that oath. This leads us to our second point this morning, the work of the king. So we've seen the oath of the king, and now we see the work of the king. Look at verses 6 and 7. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. The big question here is, what's the it, right? Um, Well, the it is the ark that is referenced uh, later, also here in verse 7, his footstool, it's another word for the ark. In 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines, if you remember, they took the ark, right? They took the ark of the covenant. But after suffering God's judgment, uh, they return it. And the ark is eventually placed in Ephrathah, and it's nearly forgotten for almost 20 years. Think about that. It's the ark of the covenant. And for 20 years, it's completely forgotten. Until David is anointed as king. 
and brings the ark to Jerusalem. And that's what we have here in this section. It's a celebration of that event. David had made an oath to build the temple of God, but God said, if you remember in our law passage, no, that's going to be the work of his son. But what David did do, the work that he did accomplish, was bring the ark to Jerusalem. So he brings the the, the ark of the covenant back into a central place within Israel. So once again, the people here appeal to David for God's blessing. Not just to his oath or devotion, but now to his work. They say here, uh, basically remember uh, how David and the people found the ark. And they quote what was said as the ark was brought into Jerusalem, right? Let us go and worship at his footstool, which again is another word for the ark. Now that we've brought the ark to Jerusalem, let us go and worship there. But what was the ark of the covenant? Well, the ark had a, a twofold purpose. And this is, this is important for understanding what's going on here. Uh, first, it was the place of God's covenant presence. This is where God was uh, dwelled enthroned right above the cherubim. It's where God enacted atonement and forgiveness. Just why the people here call upon God in verse 8, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. This verse here is quoted by Solomon again when he uh, finishes the temple. And so the people here, recounting how David brought the ark of God, right, the presence into Jerusalem, now look upon the temple and call God to be present with the ark. They understand that the ark of the covenant is the place of God's presence. Well, secondly, the ark was the container of the Ten Commandments. Now, in short, it, it, it held, among other things, uh, their end of the covenant, right? The Mosaic covenant. God would surely bless them as promised if they obeyed. And the ark of the covenant holds the Ten Commandments as a continual reminder to the people that there is a standard that must be met for the Lord to bless them, for the Lord to be present. And so they call upon God again in verse 9. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. They understand that for God to be with them at the ark in the temple, their priests must be righteous. They must uphold the law of God and their people must be faithful. Here in verse 9, let your saints shout for joy is faithful ones. That's the word for saint there. The connotation is, let those who are faithful shout for joy. The people understand that they must appeal to David's devotion, his oath, and his work. They must ask the Lord to make them and their priests holy and faithful. Because it is only by David's work and their holiness that God will be present with them. And so knowing this, they end with a final request in verse 10. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn your face. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Uh, For the sake of of David, do not reject the king. Right, Bless the king in in all his endeavors. But this term here, anointed one, it it means far more than just king, right? It's, It's the Hebrew word for Messiah. Ultimately, they know that David and his sons, and they themselves, will always fall short. 
priests will never be perfectly righteous, they will never be perfectly faithful, and the sons of David will fail. And they are ever in need of the promised Messiah. And so they ask here, do not reject the Messiah. We need a substitute. We need another king to come who will be righteous. The beauty of this psalm is that Christians today know that God did not reject the Messiah. We know this because Christ, the oath that he made, he accomplished. And the Father resurrected him. In the same way that the people look to David and his work, right, as the ground for God's blessing, so we too, Christians, we look to Christ, the greater David, as the ground for God's favor. Christ is not just uh, uh, the one who brought the ark into Jerusalem like David did. Christ is the ark of the covenant. He is the place of God's presence with us, right? Emmanuel, God with us. He's the place of God's atonement. He's the place where the law is fulfilled. Even the language here reminds us of Christ. We heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Ja'ar. Ephrathah, where they found the ark, is the ancient name for the town of Bethlehem. Do you think of another group of people, maybe even shepherds like David, who heard of the presence of God in Bethlehem and then who went and found God there? I mean, even Luke kind of mentions that they find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth. What did the shepherds say? Let us go and worship the king. That's what the psalm literally says. Let us go and worship. Christ is the Ark of the Covenant where God is. And the one who fulfills as both God and man only could what David and every son of David could not. He is the righteous priest of this psalm. And so the people, the saints, that is us, Christians, shout for joy. Because we know that unlike the Davidic covenant, where the faithfulness of the people earned God's favor, Christ's faithfulness has earned God's favor for all those who put their faith in him. David made an oath to find a place for God to dwell. This psalm then has him acting on that oath and bringing the ark into Jerusalem. And the people appeal to this oath and this act for God's favor. Christ made an oath. The Son made an oath to find a place for God to dwell. He then came and dwelled among men. And so we who have faith in Him can rest in God's favor. Because the atonement of the ark has been finished. And the fulfillment of the law in the ark has been accomplished. And the greater David was raised to glory. David died. His tomb is still with us to this day, as Acts says. Christ died. And his tomb was left empty. And it remains empty to this day. If you are a Christian here this morning, you are a Christian because Christ made an oath to the Father to save you. And then came and did just that. 
If you have faith in Christ, that means your unloveliness does not dictate your belovedness. Because God's love for you was promised before the world began. And one in full in Christ. Because Christ, because He is the greater David, God's promises to His people are sure. And again, our trust in Him is certain. In fact, this certainty or assurance of God's grace, uh, it remains in full until glory. But it doesn't feel that way, right? I mean, so often, man, doubt takes us. Well, our third and final point this morning is the glory of the King. The glory of the King. Verses 11 through 12. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Here in the following verses is a dramatic turn in this psalm. In fact, it's a shift in focus that we see repeated in 2 Samuel 7, right? It's a dramatic shift away from David and his promises to God and his promises. In verses 1 through 5, we see David's oath to build a house. But here we see God promise to build David a house. Notice first that this is a sure oath from which he will not turn back. God did not turn back from that promise, right? He gave David Solomon to sit upon his throne. But notice there's also a second promise that follows this first. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Here, God doesn't just promise David's son will reign, but that his son's sons and their sons and so forth forever. But this promise is conditional. The sons must keep the covenant and the law. God says, if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, that I shall teach them. This is uh, verse 14 of 2 Samuel uh, summarized here. So even as this psalm has turned away from David's oath and towards God's promises, the weight of the law remains. The history of Israel from this point forward is a history of David's sons failing. Failing to keep the covenant. Failing to keep the testimonies that is both the law and the prophets that God continuously sends to the kings to rebuke them, to warn them. This shift is is not just a shift from David and towards God, but also from the people as well. Look at verses 13 to 17. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Where the people called God to arise and go to his dwelling, right, his resting place. Here God says, I have chosen Zion as my dwelling place. Uh, Zion is is not just another name for Jerusalem. It's It's another name really for Jerusalem that encompasses the community, the people. And so God is saying here, no, 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 I have chosen my people to dwell with them. 
And this dwelling brings about blessing, right? He will bless their provisions. He will bring about bread and food and shelter, even for the poor. He will also uh, call, uh, answer the call of the people, right? He will clothe the priest in salvation, and the people will shout for joy. Finally, as the people asked, right, that, that the Lord would not turn away his anointed, here he promises that to, he will raise up his anointed and give him a lamp to his feet to, to guide and light his path. And it's the coming of this anointed one that God ultimately defeats the enemies of his people. We see that in verse 18. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Every word of this section, if not this psalm, is a messianic prophecy of Christ. And we cannot understand the fullness of this text apart from that point. So three things real quick. Uh, First of all, the Jews knew this. Uh, That is why uh, the father of John the Baptist says that the birth of John the Baptist in Luke 1.69, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So at the advent of Christ, John the Baptist, uh, his father, quotes verse 17. Mary also in her Magnificat, her song, refers to verse uh, 15 in Luke 1.53. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. The Jews knew this. When Christ appears, the Jews look to this psalm. They look to the Davidic covenant, and in particular this psalm, and say, here's the answer to these promises. The apostles also knew it as well as we saw in our gospel passage, right? Acts 20, 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Finally, Jesus knew it himself. Uh, In John 5, 35, he says to the Pharisees, the Pharisees, they're having this conversation about John the Baptist, his importance, who he was. And Jesus calls John the Baptist. He says, John the Baptist was a burning and shining lamp. Scholars believe that this is a direct reference to verse 17 here. The Lord did raise up a lamp for his anointing, his anointed, and that is Christ. And the lamp being John the Baptist. We cannot understand the fullness of this text apart from Christ. Christ is the greater son of David, who fulfilled the covenant and the law and who will reign forever. It is in and through Christ that God has chosen Zion, his people, and desired to dwell with them. There is nothing in me, there is nothing in you apart from Christ that is desirable from God. Besides the mere fact that you are made in the image of God and part of his creation, which is wonderful and true, but a desire to be present with you is a crushing desire apart from Christ. Because the presence of God without a mediator is death. It is Christ alone that we are satisfied. The bread of life. Blessed are the poor, as we've seen in the Beatitudes. 
He was and is the priest clothed in righteousness, as I've said, as we've seen. And so we are a kingdom of priests clothed in salvation and with shouts of joy that is promised here in this psalm. He is the horn. It's an imagery of of might and power and rule that the Lord raised. And His enemies will be clothed with shame. And forever His crown will shine. And it is to that day that this psalm calls us to look. In the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son, the Son made an oath to build the church, to save the elect of God. And the Father sent the Son, and the Son accomplished the work of that oath. And the oath of the Father, the promise of the Father to the Son in that covenant was glory. We saw this in our law passage that was quoting uh, Psalm 110, right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You know, the New Testament quotes that verse and applies it to Christ more than any other verse in the Old Testament. This is the covenant between the Father and the Son. Even Christ himself says, who is David's Lord? Whom God made a covenant with? Implying that it is him. Just as God promised David the glory of an everlasting kingdom upon perfect obedience of his sons, the Father promised the Son the glory of an everlasting kingdom. And brothers and sisters, you are that glory. You are that kingdom. One day, all of his enemies, all of your enemies, all of your doubt, all of your sin will be put to shame. And the bride of Christ, His glory, His kingdom, you will be spotless as you stand before Christ, your King. Christ has won. Christ has won. And He will win. And His crown will shine forever. This psalm from beginning to end is about Christ our King. If you have faith in Him this morning, you can be sure. No matter your doubts, no matter your sins, if you have faith in Christ this morning, you can be sure that glory awaits you because the Father promised that glory to the Son. He promised to give the Son a spotless, sinless bride. And that is you. If you have faith in Him. So, so, so your salvation today and tomorrow and, and into glory is not grounded primarily in God's love for you, but the Father's love for the Son that pours out in love for you. Because Christ is the greater David, the promises of your salvation is sure. And so your doubts can dissipate Because before time began, you were promised salvation. In the first half of this psalm, we have David making an oath to build a house. David's devotion and love for God. We have the people with the law, right? Applying and appealing to David's oath and righteousness. What is presented here in the first half is simply this. The only hope. The only hope to be right with God, to earn His favor, His love, His promises, is perfect obedience. That's it. But in the second half, we have God's promises. 
to build a house for his name, to make uh, the priests and the people righteous. Here we have in this psalm a presentation of the gospel where God does for us what he requires of us and what we could not do for ourselves. Because God has done this in Christ, we are able to stand before him today, tomorrow, and in glory. Ultimately, what we see here is the distinction between the law and the gospel, between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. This is one of the most important distinctions that we hold as Christians. And at the heart of this distinction is the covenant of redemption between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. How can we trust that God will keep His promises? Even though we fall and fail to keep His law. Because Christ made an oath to make us saints. And the Father made an oath to present us sanctified before our husband Christ. So look to Christ. Consider Him. Look to the Gospel, not the law. He is the greater David who fulfilled the oath of this psalm. He is the greater David who accomplished the work of this psalm. And He is the greater David to whom the Father promised, sit at My right hand until I make your enemies, your enemies, not just Christ's enemies, your enemies, His footstool. He is the greater David whose enemies will be put to shame and whose crown will shine forever. When you doubt that God loves you, when you doubt God's love for you, consider Jesus. May God hasten the day when at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And may we until that day and every day look to Him as our righteousness, our salvation, and our King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, it is so often so hard to consider Jesus. Our sight is so often blurred and blinded by sin and temptation and suffering that we often forget the hardships and suffering of another in our place. Lord, send Your Spirit this morning to move in our midst to open our eyes to our King. And may we in our suffering, in our daily lives, give glory to none other than Christ our King. O Lord, all glory to You, O God, who saved us, not only when we were sinners, but before we were even in existence. You promised to do so. Lord, we give all glory and praise to You alone in the name of Jesus Christ. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen.